You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 532 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, January 8th. 2023. And in this episode, I want to talk about a (laughs) broad range of subjects. But before I do, uh, you know, if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you think to yourself, yeah, you always talk about a broad range of subjects. It's rare for you to just camp out on one subject. So why tell us? Why tell us? For one, not everybody has been listening to this podcast since forever. And if you're new, if you're just tuning in for this episode, I want to establish your expectations right from the jump. And I also, for those who have been listening and maybe tune in now and again, depending on the topic, I don't think everybody listens to everything. I might talk about everything. I listen to every episode. My wife listens to every episode. God bless her. But not everybody listens to every episode. In fact, I think everybody just kind of bounces around. There's certain topics that they find interesting when I talk about them, but then there are others where they could just, you know, rather listen to something else, right? A different podcast is their favorite on that particular subject, or that subject just doesn't interest them. Nevertheless, you know, it's it's not a bug, it's a feature of this podcast, what I am doing, that I want to talk about everything. In fact, initially, when when I very first started, and this was all experimental, I had some consultation with friends and family of mine where I asked, what do you think? And they said, well, I I think you need to narrow your scope. I think you need to talk about a specific topic like theology. You know, make your podcast about theology first and foremost – And then if you want to branch out every now and then, you know, have a rabbit trail here and there, you can, but bring it back, right? Bring it back to theology. Or maybe you have your podcast on ecclesiology. You know, you don't call it that because a lot of people just don't talk in those terms these days, but you call it something else, but you'll know, you'll know that this is about the study of church, right? The, the, The science of church, the study of church, that's what ecclesiology is, ecclesi. Uh, basically being the short term for church, ology. Anytime you put an ology on the end of something, that's the study of that thing. But I basically said early on, <coughs> no, <laughs> I I don't like that idea of narrowing my scope to one particular thing. I actually do want to talk about everything. And some say, oh, that's just not feasible and you're never going to be you know, extraordinarily successful if you know what you're looking for is to have a large audience and to make it big and all that then you're never going to you're never going to reach that goal if you're talking about everything because you're going to lose people anytime you switch to a topic that they don't want to talk about and to that i would say part of why i'm podcasting is because i see too much of the tunnel vision on this issue and this issue and this issue and not enough connections being made between subjects and we're not having an integrated enough approach to developing worldview. You know, th- there's this term that I became familiar with in the past year, thanks to Carl Truman, actually, by the way, for bringing it up, mentioning it in his uh, latest book. I think it's still the latest. You know, where where he talks about the evolution of the modern world and the modern way of thinking. He brings up this term social imaginary. And he keeps talking about it again and again. He keeps talking about social imaginary. And as I was listening to his book, Strange New World, not to be confused with Brave New World, although (laughs) it'll be difficult (laughs) for more than one reason (laughs) to not uh, associate the two. As I was reading Strange New World, I realized how often he was mentioning social imaginary, I needed to just pause and do a little bit more research. Maybe I, I wasn't paying close enough attention when he first defined it, or maybe he was assuming that his audience is going to have uh, you know, familiarity with the term. And 
that's instructive, by the way. You know, make sure if you're talking about everything and you're bringing in phrases and terms and definitions that, you know, you're explaining it carefully and on a basic level so that people can keep up. Um, social imaginary. That's such a term, right? That That is a term that we have to just slow down, stop, back up, unpack, because as it seems to me, it's a very academic term that is known to folks who specialize in a particular field or they are, you know, the, the intelligentsia, right? They, they talk amongst themselves and amongst uh, their colleagues and their peers about these things. They know what they mean when they say social imaginary. The rest of us, the lay people, we could, right? We could know what they're talking about. And that's the point, right? That's the point of my bringing these things up and talking about everything because the social imaginary is another way of saying worldview, right? In in Christianese, or at least in the circles that I have run in, going to Cedarville University especially, there's a lot of talk about worldview. Now, what is worldview? Worldview is a lot more self-evident a phrase or a term than social imaginary, perhaps. But worldview is really just your view of the world. And what I mean by that is not that, hey, we've got satellites up in space and now you've got GPS on your phone. And when you want to get to grandma's house <laughs> uh, in another state, and you you know want to know the best route, you plug in her address and GPS tells you, Google Maps tells you how to get there. That's not what worldview is. Worldview has to do with your presuppositions, namely for the Christian, who is God? Who are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? You know, why, why are we here? Where are we going? And how did we get here is a big part of understanding where we're at right now. But from a historical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, from a ontological standpoint, which is just to say, from a study of the nature of being, right? Ontology, being, the study of the nature of being. So if we're getting ontological about ourselves, that is to say that we are studying human nature. And you can do that with whatever you're looking at or examining at a given point in time. But ontology, the nature of being, is not necessarily the same thing as this idea, this concept of worldview, nor is it the same thing necessarily as the social imaginary, even though the social imaginary and worldview are almost synonymous, I would say. My introduction to the idea of social imaginary is more macro, right? Think macro. Think uh, zeitgeist, the spirit of this age. Think ages of the earth or think epochs. You know, we, we talk about the industrial era of human civilization, or we take, we talk about the atomic era or the modern era or the postmodern era versus the bronze age, the iron age, right? And we understand that we're talking about a time that is not narrowly defined. It's not like a generation necessarily, you know, a generation is roughly 30 years. So, you know, a lifespan from birth to mature adulthood, where you are then going to have children of your own, typically by then, and have, you know, partially raised them, if not having just had them born. You know, 30 years, that's a generation. An age of the earth or an era or an epoch is not quite the same, but it, but it is similar. It's similar, but in civilizational terms. An era is almost like a generation, but for civilizations. As they are born and then come of age and then maybe give birth or father, <laughs> the, the next era, which is related, it will bear an uncanny resemblance but it also can go its own way and it can be better than the previous era. It can be awful and ugly 
relative the previous era. And in our era, the social imaginary being something like a worldview that is common or more typical, the sensibilities, the values of a time, of a period, of an epoch, of an age, the social imaginary is not the same as what it was with regards to how we define where we are, where we've been, where we come from, where we're going, why are we here, who is God, who are we, how do we relate to one another. All of it in this moment in history is very different. All of it is very different than what it was, let's say, in the medieval period. The medieval period, all questions came back to what does God want? All questions were subordinated, in the West anyways, to theology. Theology was the queen of the sciences, not the king of the sciences because God is king, but theology was the queen of the sciences, much like wisdom being a woman in Proverbs in the Old Testament. Theology was the queen of the sciences, and as such, she ruled over all of the other natural sciences, all of the physical sciences and the metaphysical sciences. All of them were subordinated to and were made to serve theology. In our day, that is not the case. Theology is relegated to a dusty room in the building next door that is not going to be (laughs) the most up-to-date, most renovated, most modern building on campus. Theology, that's next door in the building that was part of the original campus here in this building where we've got all the other sciences, you know, it, we, we're talking about practical things and we keep the theology over there. That's part of the reason why I don't want to have a podcast that is narrowly focused on theology because I think that that is too much of a reinforcement of our social imaginary right now, which actually is secular humanism. The individual is going to define their place in the grand scheme of things, relative economics, national interests, politics, instead of us perceiving economics and what's going on in the nation's best interest, relative, what does God's word say? And then too, both end, you know, national interest, economic interests, national security, my individual interests, my individual calling in life, purpose in life, place in life, measured against what does God want? You know, where am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Let me ask God. If those questions are relegated to theology and theology is just a bunch of guys who camp out in the dusty building next door and they keep it to themselves, that's a reinforcement of the current social imaginary. And to borrow from Augustine, We are depriving the public of good if we do so, if we do that, if we confine ourselves to the dusty building next door and when we're, you know, shouted down and ordered out because we bring God into our considerations and our debates and our thinking out loud about things, if we agree to that, well, then I think that actually is where we will never be successful. We will never be successful as a people. I will never be successful as an individual. I am much more concerned with risking success relative to the social imaginary being confirmed as the status quo continually ad infinitum. I'm much more concerned about that than I am whether this podcast is quote unquote successful from the standpoint of having millions of listens a month. You know, a funny thing. We had biblical training group at our house on Friday night. It was the first time in three weeks due to the holidays and illness in our household. And the topic was Trinity. And Gary Brashears, he is the professor from Western Seminary who is teaching a guide to Christian theology, which we are going through. And, oh, by the way, you know his, his lectures are much shorter, uh, 20 minutes 30 minutes at most, but I I don't even remember if any of them approach 30 minutes. Most of them are within, you know, five to 10 minutes of 
that 18 minute mark, you know, very, very closely, uh, tracking with an average of 20 minutes. And that leads to, you know, much more time being afforded to discussion, conversation, questions, comments, uh, amongst our group, which I value. And I think that's excellent. I think I, I prefer that. Uh, maybe all the more because I, uh, record long form podcasts. I, I see the value in us having more time for us to talk about these things. And I think that's where a verbal processor like myself really needs that time, not just to watch and listen, but to discuss. But Gary Brashears, uh, you know, he's an older gentleman and, uh, you, you know, uh, not a full head of hair does he have anymore. And one of my kids commented as they came into the room before we had started the video, before everybody had gotten their decaf coffee and their fruit pizza, except for me, I didn't get any fruit pizza, but my wife made some more fruit pizza yesterday. God bless her. Uh, I had requested, I love fruit pizza and I'd requested it, but everybody else got to it before I did. <laughs> I was busy having a discussion uh, about polygamy, by the way if you're curious. But one of my kids commented and said, is that Joe Rogan? And JP Chavez and myself, uh, we laughed, right? We thought that was just very, very funny. No, that's not Joe Rogan. And then this child of mine said, oh, he looks like Joe Rogan. And I said, well, I'm I'm sure Gary Brashears would be very tickled to hear you say that. Uh, Joe Rogan, maybe not so much. Maybe, <laughs> no offense, Gary, <laughs> but... Uh, it, 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 needless to say, this is not Joe Rogan. This is Gary Brashears. But the point is, actually, part of why that's so funny is we think of Joe Rogan as being this big success because he is. From a podcasting standpoint, you, you don't really get any more successful than Joe Rogan. And yet he's known for, uh, you know, making some very controversial remarks regarding cannibalism and how, you know, in the right circumstances, I might, right? I might uh, eat somebody else. Also known for his use of recreational drugs. Uh, also, I I don't know what his spirituality is. I think it's probably a hodgepodge, but my guess would be Buddhism. But actually, it's probably you know more new age, more hodgepodge than anyone. He is a man of the times. He is successful and he talks about everything with everyone. And anytime he gets in trouble, that's his fallback as he says, I, I just like to talk about everything. But see, even when he brings on somebody who has a controversial opinion, in some sense, the social imaginary remains intact because the underlying premise is that the theology goes over there, right? In the building next door, and the dusty building next door that's a few hundred years old and not updated, it doesn't get the funding. The theology goes over there. We are doing you know, important science in the nice new building that is well-funded, <clears throat> well-maintained, updated. And Gary Brashears, meanwhile, you know, pastor, preacher, theologian, professor, you know, we don't think he, he is ever going to be successful, quote unquote, successful at the level of a Joe Rogan, nor is he trying to be right. He understands his niche and he sticks to his lane. And so I think about that and I think, okay, but if the social imaginary is left intact because we confine the study of theology to the experts or we keep it separate and we're affirming that social imaginary, that practical rubber meets the road day-to-day -day life when it comes to how we run our businesses, how we run our homes, how we run our churches, how we run our academies, how we you know, moderate debate in the public square, how we elect our leaders and hold them accountable or don't, as the case may be, how we read the news, how we read current events, how we cultivate our friendships, all of it, right? All of it we think of first and foremost as needing to be informed by psychology, and economics, and politics. And I say, okay, but if those are rather than or before being informed by theology, 
good theology, then we have deprived those fields of goodness and wholeness and virtue, and they are going to be unreliable guides. All the more, the longer we have deprived them of goodness. Uh, At their root, they were informed by, motivated by, driven by Christian theology, which is the only theology properly. Everybody else is just trying to keep up with the Christians when it comes to theology, if they're making any claim, any attempt at theology whatsoever. But then somebody might say, well, this is a really odd direction to go. And I say, it is. And that's all the more reason why it's a travesty that I don't see other people doing this. That's why I'm doing it, because I don't see other people doing it, and it needs to be done that we would integrate our worldview for all of the above. And to the untrained ear, not the untrained eye necessarily, if you're only listening, but to the untrained ear, you would say, well, Garrett, this is just you rambling. And I say, no, it's not. If I talk about Top Gun Maverick and also the world population by <laughs> uh, you know, year, year over year, according to worldomedeers.info, and if I talk about Kevin McCarthy now being elected next Speaker of the House, and if I talk about the secret to why Roman concrete lasts for 2,000 years, but we can't get a sidewalk or a driveway to last for two, you know, if I talk about all of these things while also talking about theology, I am convinced that God's word will not return void of power. And I'm convinced that God has something for us to learn that can actually make these things profitable and productive and blessed again, instead of futile. You know, think about what is encapsulated and conveyed in Romans 1 when there's this broad overview of the circumstance for the Romans, right? This broad overview of where we find ourselves when we survey world history. Romans 1 talks about the truth about God being plain and evident. Look at creation. The truth about God, that he exists, that he is a God of order, not a God of chaos, that he is good, that he's glorious, that he's majestic. The truth about God is written in every sunset and every sunrise and every flower that grows from a little seedling. And yet, unrighteous men, wicked men, suppress the truth about God because their deeds are dark. They love darkness because their deeds are dark. They think that if they suppress the truth, they can continue on as they have been. And that's their highest goal. That's their highest aim. And they become wise in their own eyes. They think to themselves, they're very clever at a certain point. Look how clever I am. I know the truth, but I tell other people a lie. And then they think I'm very smart because I don't give them the secret. Like Samson, when he's asked by Delilah, he should have dumped her the first time she asked him, or at least the first time he woke up and found that she had uh, told some guys what he had told her. That was the test. You know, see, if, if you're going to test a woman like that, you've got to be willing to actually walk away. And if you're not, then, you know, you're, you're going to get what Samson got. <laughs> your, your eyes poked out, your head shorn, and uh, you made a laughing stock. But, you know, it's, it's like with Samson, you know, teasing her. She asks what the secret is to his strength, and he lies. Oh, if I'm brown, if, if I'm uh, bound with fresh ropes, then I will lose all my extraordinary strength and be as weak as any man. And so they try it, and it doesn't work. And he thinks this is terribly funny. And that's what depraved men, unfortunately, also do with regards to the secret science of how they get to be successful. They might tell you it's this, this is their secret, to give you something, but then that's not actually what it was, because that would be an idiot to give you the keys to their undoing as they see it. Or they would be an idiot to give you the keys to why they're successful, and now you're successful just like they're successful, and what's the point of that? There goes their advantage. But their foolish hearts were darkened. They were wise in their own eyes, these men who suppressed the truth, and still do. This is where there is no new thing under the sun. Men whose deeds are dark 
suppress the truth about God, deny it. They become wise in their own eyes. They think I'm terribly clever. See, I've pulled the wool over their eyes. I'm wise in my own eyes. I can still see. And actually, they become futile in their thinking. That word futile or futility, as the case may be, means unproductive. As in, it stops working for you, actually, at a certain point. The trick wears out. People get wise and they do figure how you were conning them or getting that advantage. And then they figure out the way to stop you or to make that ineffective, to neutralize it. You know, look at Paul, the apostle, being familiar enough with Greek poets to be able to quote them. And that being an important part of his missionary work to the Greeks, not that he is playing the same game and he's trying to be as impressive. You know, I just, I cater to the Greeks and anything that the Greeks would be impressed by, well, that's what I'm going to have to do as well. Well, in that case, are you even a missionary to them anymore or have you been converted? I know people who this is the case with, they go to some place to be a missionary there and then they come back and you find that they've actually been more converted than the folks they went to convert. Well, that's not what we do. But there's a there's a conversant quality towards the end of doing apologetics. You learn the language, the lingo, the social imaginary, the values, the mores. You have to know those in order to do what is honorable in the sight of all, which we are commanded to do, inasmuch as lies within us, strive to live peaceably with all men, subordinated to obeying God. If the two come into conflict, then the tiebreaker is whatever God said, whatever he commanded. But I look at this, right? The archaeologists, Daniel Payne's got a post over at Not to Be from yesterday. Archaeologists believe they've discovered the mystery factor that has allowed Roman buildings to continue standing for 2,000 years. As it turns out, you know, part of the reason, or maybe the whole reason, is because Roman concrete was made with a special inclusion of lime at high temperature that creates compounds which allow Roman concrete to heal itself. I kid you not. It's a, it's able to heal itself if it gets cracked. So it's self-repairing. Similar to how our bodies, the cells, the cellular regeneration in our bodies is supposed to replace, repair. Now, if that process either kicks into overdrive in the wrong spot, that's where you get cancer. If it stops keeping up with the rate of breakdown, then that's where you get aging and ultimately death. But this is remarkable, right? It's remarkable. And I would say that the secret to Roman concrete, allowing Roman buildings and Roman roads and aqueducts and all the rest to stand for 2,000 years, that secret is very, very similar to the secret ingredient of the Christian worldview as relates to science generally. You know, it's this mystery. We think, oh man, how is it possible? How is it possible? How is it possible that this science is breaking down, right? Our so-called settled science is an approach to, it's a mindset towards science that can't be sustained. It breaks down, it cracks. And we see the cracks. And if you point out the cracks and somebody says, oh, you're anti-science. No, no, no. I'm anti you being sloppy with your science and refusing to be questioned because that's not actually science. That's just you being an egotistical jerk in a white lab coat who's overpaid and has an overinflated view of himself. I'm for science. What you're doing is not science. Well, part of the reason for this, and you'll see when you read Herman Bavinck's The Christian Philosophy of Science, you'll see this. Part of the reason why Christianity was essential to science is because it had a stabilizing effect. See here also the difference, and I was just talking about this with my oldest son and my dad last night after we watched Top Gun Maverick together, our family movie night, pizza night, we watched Top Gun Maverick. And it was fantastic, by the way. Excellent movie. Really, really good. Really well made. Best movie I've seen in years. How I know is if I would be inclined to say, oh, they just don't make movies like this anymore, or this movie could never be made today, but they did make it today. And they, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. That, that is a good movie. This is a really good movie. This is a return to older ways of making movies. 
that were successful and people actually wanted to see them and loved them. Good idea. Don't don't just mix in some of the old soundtrack and some of the comedic bits. No, no, that's the surface level stuff. You know, not not anything else will do like the special lime at a high temperature that you mix in that creates these compounds. And oh, by the way, it reduces curing and setting times, allowing for much faster construction in the case of Roman concrete. But Herman Bavinck's Christian philosophy of science chronicles how Christianity and its Evangelion and Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, calling for confession and repentance at conversion and throughout the life of the Christian. That is a model, actually, for how to do good science. You do not have modern science apart from that shaping and informing and stabilizing European civilization, Western civilization. You just don't. You can't. You know, to give you another example, I watched The Northmen on Amazon Prime yesterday morning. Our youngest, Andrew, was fussy and restless, and I would have gotten up and recorded a podcast yesterday morning, but Lauren asked me to take him so she could get a little bit more sleep. So I took him, and I watched The Northman, and I I would not. I, I don't see myself ever watching that movie again. It, I did not come away from it feeling as happy and optimistic and encouraged as I did when I came away from watching Top Gun Maverick. I did not feel uplifted and edified. And I think a large part of the reason for this is because whatever strengths and technical advancements, technological advancements, say with regards to boat building or metallurgy, the Norse had, the Northmen, the children of Ash and Elm had, they were unstable, highly unstable. This is why when the Nazis tried to hearken back to the old Germanic Norse religion, worshiping Odin and Thor and Freyr and all the rest, or co-opting Christianity to promote all the values of the old Norse religion, yeah, they made some phenomenal advances in science. Their scientists did some amazing things. Also, their military was able to berserk all the neighbors and take huge swaths of land and territory in pretty short order. But the Nazi ethos, worldview, social imaginary paradigm was highly unstable. Even when it came to the conquest, the defeat of the Nazis, partitioning Germany down the middle, West Germany being under the sway of the United States and our NATO allies, Eastern Germany being subjugated by the Soviet Union, oppressed for decades by the Soviet Union, still suffering the lasting effects of that oppression under Soviet rule. Where did the Nazi scientists want to go or the German scientists who had been forced to work for the Nazis? They they didn't all necessarily belong to the Nazi party or agree with what the Nazis were doing. Just because they were Germans, that doesn't mean that they were Nazis. So also, I hope in, in future decades, I will not be called a Democrat or a progressive just because the Democrats and the progressives hold sway right now. I'm an American, not a Democrat, not a progressive, certainly not a leftist. But the the German scientists who all of a sudden were going to go somewhere, they were going to do something or else be executed for aiding and abetting and helping the Germans to do what they did. Those German scientists, they either went to the Soviet Union and were put to use for the USSR, or they went over to the Americans. And then they were put to use in programs like NASA. Rinner von Braun, for instance, made NASA and the winning of the space race for America possible. Lots of things actually find their root. Some really awful and detestable and not for America's better made possible 
by German scientists. But some, some advancements, pretty fantastic. And why is that? I think it's because flaws, yes, warts and all, America still has more of that stabilizing Christian faith that is common to our people that makes it possible for the advancements to not completely self-destruct. You know, it, using an analogy from Top Gun Maverick, you've got at the beginning of the movie, this special advanced fighter that they are testing. And Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, is about to have his program shut down and everybody's going to get canned because a certain admiral is not wanting us to sink any money into this. The future is drones, unmanned aircraft, not you guys having a hard time blacking out when you get up to Mach 10 or whatever. They haven't even gotten to Mach 9. They've got weeks left and he jumps in the plane, takes off. He takes this thing up to Mach 10 and then he pushes it past Mach 10 and the whole thing becomes unstable. It can't sustain it. It's not able to withstand the force and the plane is ultimately ripped apart. And somehow he survives because it's a movie, by the way. But the plane is just ultimately like ripped apart by the forces at that rate of speed. And can I point out that getting to Mach 10 or Mach 10.5 or whatever, it's of limited value if it's unstable. If you can't stabilize the aircraft at that speed and it ultimately blows up, well then either A, you're going to have to just commit yourself to this being a uh, you know suicide mission. These are disposable aircraft, disposable pilots if they're manned, or you're going to have to figure out some way to stabilize, like what the Romans did with their concrete, something like that, something analogous to that. Also, the science, right? The approach to science is going to have to be stabilized. And how can it be stabilized if we've got the old pagan view of revenge and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but we're always going to escalate it. So it's more eyes and more teeth. I'm going to require as payback if somebody wrongs me than I actually lost. Sometimes I'll even claim that I lost because I actually just want what they have. I covet their thing. You know, the, the end of the Northmen is not this and that guy coming to the buddy's rescue and everybody makes it home safe at the end of the day, at least on the American side. Whoever they're fighting, not so much maybe. But, you know, the end of the Northmen is uh, the two combatants, not to give anything away, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, the, the end of Northmen is the two guys who've been spending the whole movie at odds Kill each, uh, kill each other. Both. They're both dead at the end in the midst of this volcano in Iceland. Now, that that could not produce Top Gun Maverick level technology. There has to be a stabilizing agent like forgive. Like if somebody slaps you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. If it's just an insult, let it go. And I'm reading right now. I'm almost done with it. I need to go ahead and finish it up today. But I'm reading A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, which is this travel uh, journal. It's a series of letters and, and journal entries by this English woman who traveled around the Rocky Mountains region, particularly Colorado, Fort Collins, she talks about, Estes Park, she talks about, Denver, she talks about, Colorado Springs, she talks about, in 1873. Isabella L. Bird was her name, by the way. And one of the things she comments on is that you have some very itchy trigger fingers. I mean, everybody, everybody, far from this idea of women always being oppressed before feminism came along and gave women pride of place. No, no. She is traveling oftentimes alone through the Rocky Mountains and treated with the utmost courtesy and respect by even the roughest, toughest, most lawless men you know, fur trappers and mountaineers and ranchers and banditos and, you know, the, the whole gamut. But towards one another, these men, if they even just barely feel slighted, insulted, inconvenienced, put out, 
irritable, somebody might end up dead, shot dead. And they don't play by the respectable rules of dueling. As soon as the other guy even barely touches his gun, once the blood is up, that becomes the excuse for having drawn quicker and put a bullet in him. And now he's dead. And you look at that and you think, okay, but see, you know, we did the same thing. Yes, yes, but also no, because that was not seen as normative and that had to give way, that had to be curbed and that had to be rectified through law and order. That needed to be corrected by Christian patience, kindness, gentleness, humility, justice, yes, and mercy. And Christian civilization here in the United States is only possible because we have Jesus setting us the example and stabilizing our advances, sustaining us, is this idea that we have God's grace towards us and we are called to, however however we respond to that call imperfectly, we are called to extend grace to one another. Forgive as you have been forgiven. If there's no forgiveness, then we destroy ourselves and one another like, like the Vikings did. Now, I would say, referring back to Tom Holland, not the actor, but the historian and author, Tom Holland's The Forge of Christendom, the Vikings coming down from the north were like a hammer pounding Christian civilization, particularly emanating from Rome, yes, and the Celtic Christians in Ireland and then Scotland, also Charlemagne's court and the Holy Roman Empire, as it was known. The Vikings were like a hammer when they came down out of the north in their longboats, coming up rivers and streams and attacking without notice, without mercy, monasteries and villages, robbing and plundering and raping and murdering. The Vikings coming down were like a hammer. The Muslims in the south trying to come up and conquer through Spain and having designs on attacking Italy, also taking over Constantinople and trying to work west from there. The Muslims were like an anvil. And again, what stabilized Christian Europe was that we have the grace of God and we have God's justice and we have God's mercy both. And that allows for healing when there is a fracture. That allows for restoration instead of just breaking apart, disintegrating, falling to pieces. If we want to endure, we have to go to God for healing on an individual basis, also on a civilizational basis. If we want healing, it comes from God. But that is to say, it comes from God. He's not run out. If we go to God and we seek that, and then we extend the grace to others and one another that has been extended to us, then we can have peace with God, peace being restoration, wholeness being made whole, being made complete again, all of these being, in some sense, synonymous with healing, forgiveness, mercy, restoration, peace. But, you know, think of this. I was doing some research and studying a a bit of genealogical work that my cousin Michael Hernandez did and compiled for our shared great-grandmother, Pauline Long, her side of the family. He traced it back hundreds of years to actually some pretty notable, noteworthy figures in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for instance. Reverend John Cotton, after whom Cotton Mathers was named because Cotton Mathers was his grandson. I am a direct descendant of John Cotton, as it turns out. He's my ninth great-grandfather. Also his son, John Cotton II, Reverend John Cotton II, who helped produce the second edition of Eliot's Indian Bible, the first Bible translated into indigenous American language, by the way. He helped produce the second edition, which was much more economical than the first edition. Also spent two years preaching to the, I want to say Wampanoag Indians. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I'll need to look back again. But preaching to the Indians on 
Martha's Vineyard uh, Island, doing missionary work with them, learning their language, and then trying to evangelize, convert them to Christianity. And as I'm looking at, you know, this many generations back, and it's, you know, it's not a direct, like through the male line. It's like my mother's 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 father's mother's mother's father's mother's 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 father's father's father's, you know, that kind of a thing. And so I got to thinking yesterday, I thought, man, how many, you know, depending on how far back you go, how many great grandparents do you have in each generation, you know, within the assumption that you don't have cousins marrying one another in any cases. Yeah, nine generations back, you have 512, by the way. 10, 11, 12 generations back, you just double that. Each generation back you go, you double it. So my 10th great-grandfather, I actually have 2,048 of them and 2,048 great-grandmothers in that generation, which is, I mean, that's a lot of dice, right? That's a lot of dice that you're rolling that somebody, someone in there is going to have done something that was remarkable. People did things back then, and we read about it, which also, by the way, is uh, thanks in large part to the stabilizing effect of Christian civilization, that we write about these things and pass them down generation to generation, honoring father and mother. That's part of the reason why there's a memory. But how many people were alive total, you know, as far as estimates go? In the 1600s, according to worldometers.info, the answer is 500 million. That's what the estimate is. That's what they think. Now, it's a nice round number. And so you know that this is not precise, but 500 million. You go back 100 years, 450 million. Another 100 years, 350 million. Another 100 years to 1200 or 200 years, actually, as the case may be, from 1400 to 1200, they estimate there were 360 million. So actually population declined from 1,200 to 1,400 for lots of reasons. They actually went backwards a bit due to illness and war and such like. But now, today, we're over 8 billion. And as such, you have people increasingly saying, can the earth sustain too many more billions? Maybe we need to start culling the herd. And again, this is where I say, if you don't have the stabilizing influence of Christianity, you will go back to, you will regress to an old pagan view that requires human sacrifice to appease the gods. And you could say, oh, I think that's all just a psychological projection of what we want. You know, people do that with Christianity, they over psychologize it. This is all just the internal world of us, and it's not actually God. We're just describing meaningful things that are complex inside of ourselves that we have to put language to. We anthropomorphize our motivations, ritualize them, etc. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. But even if you take that view, it's half a dozen and one and six of the other in terms of effect if we are going back to the sensibilities of the neo-pagans who ran the Third Reich. There was nothing inherent to the German people from a genetic standpoint that required them to go all in with Nazism, whether passively or actively. It was a choice. It was a gradual slide and then faster and faster down a slippery slope in compromising on the authority of God's word, compromising it, undermining it, introducing newfangled ways of studying Jesus, thinking about Jesus, putting what Jesus commanded, what he taught, who he is in a little compartment, in a little box on the shelf, in the dusty building next door, while we do the real physical science, the important practical science over here. And the Germans, they made huge advances. They were the most advanced industrialized country prior to World War I and World War II or the outcome of World War I and World War II. They had the best schools, they had the best scientists, they had the best factories. They were the most productive, industrious people in the world. That's part of why they thought they could win. But the neo-paganism is highly unstable. 
it cannot sustain what they were doing. Certainly not over and against the message of Christ, internalized, transformative, healing, restorative. And you could say, well, that that seems like a contradiction. That you would say, you know, the United States went and made war on Germany in a Christian way. And to that, I would just strongly caution you, look closely at Micah 6.8. Mercy and justice and humility, all three are what God requires of us. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. All three at the same time. It's like walking and chewing gum. If we can't do all three because it's difficult or it's challenging or we think these things are mutually exclusive, contradictory, that was for then, this is for now. Mm, no, nope, 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 nope. Jesus himself says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You tithe your mint and cumin, all the while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. Matthew twenty three twenty three. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. And you say, well, Jesus fulfilled all that. And I say, he will tell many who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, have we not done mighty works in your name? Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness is not biblical grace. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the law is a school teacher. It's an instructor. Can we keep it? No. Are we made righteous and justified by it? No, we're condemned by it. Do we need God's grace? Absolutely. Do we need to extend God's grace to one another? Absolutely. Are we still going to be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever? If we are lawless, yes. And this is a mystery and it's a hard thing to understand, but that's that is what we're called to. The struggle is the glory, if you will. Therein lies the challenge. Yeah, well, challenge accepted. What's wrong with a challenge? But speaking of challenges, I really have to run. I've got to go. It is a Sunday morning. I've got a limited amount of time to get myself ready, make sure my family's ready, get to church on time. More on this to come, I assure you. For now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.